This is episode 85 of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. My name is John Mark Durow. I'm the worship and community pastor here at SVCC. I am joined by the lead pastor here, Jonathan Hafes. Yo. And what are you, the discipleship pastor, Brad? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> Discipleship pastor. That's what they call me. Explain your And pastor to the stars, Brad Brown. Yes, we just included that pastor to the stars part. <laughs> oh, my word. Just kidding. How are you guys doing today? Man, I'm doing good because even though last night, uh, I, and I promise to keep this brief, even though last night my Bravos lost, they're, oh, still, no. up, break. they're still up 2-1 okay. in the National League Championship Series over the Los Angeles Dodgers. So, Ha! Andrew and and people Andrew Thompson. Listen, Brad just gave me a look, and here's the deal. Okay, gloating early. I said I was going to make this short, but you you gave me that look. So here's the deal. There are two kinds of Atlanta sports fans. There's okay. kind A that's very superstitious that you can never talk about when things are going good because it's all going to fall apart and end in heartbreak. Mm-hmm. All right, and so they won't talk about when things are going good. Mm-hmm. The, I'm not that kind of fan. There's well, kind there's that. there's kind two. Which is the kind that believes things are going to fall apart and be horrible anyway, so brag while you can. <laughs> I, have a really f- I have a really funny tweet. That's me. Um, okay. That's me. i gotta, I got to say it while I can. <laughs> I have a really funny tweet that I want to read in regards to all this, and I just thought of this as you were talking about it. Georgia football, like the Georgia Bulldogs, oh, yeah. they have a Twitter account. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Which, for those who don't know, they're number one right now in they college are number football one. And, right. and a, a favorite to win. And the fun in, in Georgia football, Atlanta Braves, Atlanta Falcons, it all sort of there. There's a lot of uh, overlap there. There's some similarities. Like Georgia football hasn't won a national championship since 1981. They have blown a couple of huge opportunities to win themselves the championships. Anyways, on their Twitter account. They tweeted out a picture uh, with some Braves players and some Georgia players all in the picture together, and it said, let's go Braves, battle Atlanta, battle, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there's this uh, sportscaster here in Birmingham that replied and said, like the Titanic wishing the Hindenburg safe travels. I thought that was hilarious. See, and yeah. I'm the kind of fan that I can enjoy that. I'm just That's right. That's right. I'm from Atlanta. Yeah, I know. The Hawks. Did you mention the Hawks, too? You oh, throw yeah, the Hawks. The Hawks in there. Yeah, throw them in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thrashers? All right, that's no probably longer. enough. We could keep talking. That's probably enough on the sports break. So, anybody All else right. got anything else, or should we just move Brad, on? Brad, what, what's happening with you right now? What's happening in your life? I kind of just want to hear an album, to be honest. I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was an accidental. But it was kind of nice, though. Yeah, lightning strike. James album of the week. All right, I've got two things that I need to cover in this little segment. Number one is that one of my favorite bands of all time put out a record, and probably one of your favorite bands, honestly, Coldplay. They put out a record on Friday called Music of the Spheres. 
it is not my album of the week because okay. okay. Here's the deal. I want to be controversial. I want to wow. I, I want people to email in and be angry with me because I do not like the album. That's right. Um, wow. And therefore, it is not my album of the week. You don't like it. I haven't listened yet, but maybe I'll be angry with Here, you. Here, a couple of things to note on it. Okay. The, the last track is called Coloratura. It's the best song, in my opinion, on the record. It's 10 minutes long. It's like their opus. It's, it's Beatles-esque. It's Bohemian Rhapsody. It's like... I, they put it out as a single about a month and a half ago, and I freaked out. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this album is going to be uh, insane!" So you had high expectations. If this is this, if this is one of the two singles they're going to put out, this is insane. And then they subsequently released a single after that with the Korean pop band BTS, and I immediately got disappointed. <laughs> And it's not that I don't like Korean pop or anything like that. It's just who are some I of your favorite like Korean pop musicians? <laughs> some of your K-pop bands. There, are, there are some. There's some Japanese music that I w- got into for a while, but nonetheless, I, that that song just drove me insane. And so wow. I put the record on. Another critique I have is that some of the intro tracks that they have for the record. They don't even. They're not even titles. They're emojis. They're symbols. They're, they're symbols. Emojis. I was just noticing that. Okay, what is happening right now? Wow, that's so creative. I'm so upset. Chris Martin. He sounds like an old man. I will still go see them live. Gotta be hip and stay with the times. I thought their last record was actually great. Everyday Life. I thought it was experimental. I thought it was unique. I thought it went back to some of their alternative rock uh-huh. leanings. And this album. For the most part, is very poppy. They worked with Max Martin, who has produced Britney Spears. He's produced a lot of pop artists, and um, they just went real poppy, and that's fine. Like that's for that's for somebody. I think so. I think he is. I do dig the uh, yeah the, the no animated artwork on Apple. I love the artwork. Radio. I love the idea of the record. I really do. I love. Coloratura is amazing. It's sort of it, it encapsulates a lot of what's going on. But there is a song with Selena Gomez that oh, yeah? I'm on the fence about. Okay, I'm not completely convinced, but it could. I I need to listen to it a few more times. It's uh it's one of the two tracks that Apple Music has a star beside. Yeah, I do. Mm. I, I'm on the fence, so we'll see what happens with that. But wow, that's kind of okay. so. So what is your album? <laughs> I feel week? like now that, that kind of became a now album that we of took week. more time to talk about what's not the yes. album. That'd be fun. Maybe you should do a I want, not album of the I week. I want people to just email ba- in. Just bash on it. I'm, I'm trying to be provocative here. Okay, Get clicks. That's what we're about. That's right. Clickbait. The album of the week comes from a band called Havdi, H-O-V-V-D-Y. The album is called True Love. The album came out this year in 2021. They're a band from Austin, Texas. Uh, really just two guys um, that are that kind of make up the, the, uh, the band. Although I'm sure when they, they tour, true they have more musicians. Oh, okay. I'm sure they have more musicians they have to based on the sound of the record. But uh, I didn't know if it was like a White Stripes vibe. No, uh, this is their fourth album called True Love. It came. Uh, it's been released by a record label called Double Double Whammy. Here is a song that I really like. It's got some Oasis vibes, which I really like a lot. It's kind of um, bedroom, bedroom pop. I may need a fuller definition of bedroom pop. What is that? Bedroom pops is sort of like uh, 
uh, lower scale production. This album's a little more, has more production on it than I think some of their previous records. But kind of a lower scale, almost lo-fi, uh, subtle, subtle textures and things. It does have that 90s vibe. But this is very 90s, yeah. Yeah, little oasis. Yeah. I just put this on, man, while I'm cooking at night. It's great. I feel like the title of the last track is a love song I would write for Holly out of my Enneagram fourness. Uh, I, I never want to make w- you sad. <laughs> yeah, these guys it's are like kind of... the way I would say I love you. <laughs> man, these guys are kind of emo, I will say. That's, that's that great. means they're all up in my alley, That's man. right. Come on back. Yeah. Good, good chord changes. I feel changes. like I'm watching a 90s movie right yeah, now. Yeah, dude. Also feels like it could be on HBO Max show. Yeah, you know how fun. This is another song called Joy. This is probably my second favorite track that I'm rocking right now. Havdi. The band is Havdi. Yeah, do you know where that came from? Doesn't say on their Wikipedia. And that's all I have in front of me right it's now. It's one page, too. <laughs> there, Not there, much. There are two Vs. Not much there. Yeah, there two Vs. It looks to I could be completely it's wrong. It's like here. Howdy. Yeah, it looks yeah. like Howdy, like they're playing with that. Yeah. Because they're from Texas. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Like a giant W made of two Vs. Kind of like, hey, we're from Texas, but we're cool. <laughs> well, Austin is a cool. I like that. Is Austin a, is a cool. cool. You can't call it cool. You got to call it weird. Listen to this. They're like competing with Portland. That vocal effect. Yeah. I like it. It's real chill, man. Real yeah, subtle textures. In fact, the uh, you know how people just make up stuff on Wikipedia? One of the genres that describes Havdi on Wikipedia is slowcore. Instead of hardcore, slowcore. There you go. Yeah, that's cool. That's helpful. (laughs) All right, check that out. Let me know what you think of the new Coldplay album Mm -hmm. that I dissed earlier and this Havdi album, which no one's probably ever heard of. Let me know what you think about that. Excellent. Hey, real, real quick, Brad. One thing that I'm I can do, never, I can never get the pause. Each week, I just want to pause. A couple of times of silence. Are we sure? Go ahead, hey, John Mark. Go ahead. I'm gonna surprise you guys one week, and it's gonna play the theme, and you're you're not gonna know it. But when I play it, it's gonna be a different version of it at the end, and it's gonna come in with like Queen style guitar. It's gonna be you're, you're gonna freak it. out. Well, why'd you tell me? Well, because because now you know it's coming, but you don't know when. Yeah, so now I'm always gonna be anxious instead of relaxing. But maybe you'll get your pause and getting into yeah. the vibe of Bradford's book club. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Bradford's book club. I'm so excited that you're all here. Last time, I believe, right? It was last time. I had a special guest, or was it two times ago? What are you t- How many times ago was it? We don't it? even know. <laughs> Just keep going. 
Well, a few Bradford's book clubs ago, we had a guest on, Jonathan Hafes, as many as, as many of you know, and he uh, referenced a children's book, mm. and which I believe he was accosted for by the Bradford himself. I don't remember that. Made fun of him for recommending children's books. What I don't, you got? What you got over there, Brad? Huh? I, I don't remember that. But, you know, Jonathan did that. It did stir my thoughts, and I felt a little insecure that I'd never referenced a children's book before. Mm. And I know that I have a lot of parents that listen and a lot of kids that listen as well. And so I wanted to recommend something. It's our that, target audience. Yeah. Would be for parents and kids alike. And that is a book titled God's Very Good Idea, a true story about God's delightfully different family. Have you all heard of this book before? I have not. You have not. I have. I've read it to my children. I own that one. Well, good for you, Jonathan. <laughs> No, I just wanted to humble brag. This over is here. a fantastic <laughs> book. I'm glad that Jonathan has it. Written by Trilla Newbell, illustrated by Catalina Echevery. See, oh, you said it with a question mark. You just got to say it confidently. Oh, I know, but I could be so off. I didn't want to do it confidently. Let me read a little bit from the back cover. Everyone you see is different than you, and the same as you. We look different, speak different, and play different, but we are all valuable. That's because in the beginning, God had the very good idea of making us that way. This is the story of his idea and how you can be a part of it. And then I'll just read a little selection. There's lots of lovely pictures that you can't see. I'm into it. Yeah, John Mark loves books with a lot of pictures. Yeah, I need more. More pictures, the better for me personally. That's right. God's idea was to make people, lots of people, lots of different people, who would all enjoy loving him and all enjoy loving each other. They would all be made in his image. They would be like mirrors reflecting what God is like because God is full of love. They would be full of love too. Story time with Brad. Should I, should I read the whole book? I thought you were about to. <laughs> almost, no. almost you were putting me to sleep like in a good way, not in a bad way. That's right. That's right. In a good way. Anyway, no, it's we, a really good one. Um, I was, was going to read one more page. Oh, go ahead. But no, go ahead. It's good. It's good. <laughs> I'll just give people a taste. I, dude, I don't think there's a ch- there as much as we talk about children's books. I I don't think there's one that we've talked about that Jonathan does not own and has not read before. Like seriously, listen. I know. Okay, y'all know that I have a book buying problem. In he has general. a problem. Um, and you well, might okay, you okay. might laugh. But you Holly's... can't make fun of me when I last week I referenced the fact that there was a movie called Paris, Texas, and you're like, "Yeah, I got that one. It's right back here." Your movie I collection do. might be more ridiculous than my book collection. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I got I have a book buying problem, and then add to the fact that I have five children, so right. I do buy children's books a little mm. a little nuts, a little yeah. little crazy. But yes. but I was just gonna say my kids enjoyed this one like they like like yep. it is engaging for yes, us for cool. kiddos. Yep, That's it's cool. engaging for kids. I love the picture. It really walks through the grand narrative of scripture. It teaches about the doctrine the that we're created in the image of God. It talks about fall and redemption and Christ's work on the cross and how that brings us by f- faith into the family of God and a diverse family of God. And the book really lays that out in a way that I think kids can engage with. So parents, families, I'm gonna adults put that like on, myself, check it out. I'm going to put that on my Christmas list and buy that for my kids this year. Well, and the author, Trilla Newbell, go. 
uh, I mean, she's she's just rock solid anyway, just as an author. Um, she's she's awesome. You could check out any of her work. She doesn't just write just for kids. I mean, she writes stuff for adults. You can find blogs yeah, and all sorts of stuff. She's a part she's of the podcast. She's got a website. Yeah, you can yeah. check her out. She's rock she's solid. She's got a ton of stuff out there. I love it. Thank you for the recommendation. So, and I don't have not a book this week. <laughs> Maybe next week not you can a, try yeah, that. Yeah, not a book for Bradford's Book Club. That'd be fun. I'll bring in a children's book not to recommend. That'd yeah. be a way to really tick people off. <laughs> I, I feel like there's an album you like, you know, that someone insults you're okay, but a book that feels a little more personal. Mm. feels like they insult your t- intelligence or something. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Well, JM, what, what do we got for this week? Yeah, so last week we were trying to get a couple of episodes together. We did a meet a member with Jonathan. Um, in the process of doing that and trying to prep and figure out what we wanted to do, I also reached out to Zach Hicks, who is a uh, local worship leader and pastor here in Birmingham. He's written a book called The Worship Pastor. I texted him. I reached out to him and said, hey, would you like to come on the podcast? And he said yes, but he he was uh, very busy. He could only do this certain time. So the time that he came in uh, to record, I was actually by myself. You guys had other things going on. Jonathan was was prepping for Sunday. It's, it's part of our thing as a podcast. That's yes. right. No. And yep. so uh, I was spending time in prayer, I think. But yeah. I, I got to hang out with Zach. We talked, chatted for like an hour. We talked about his book, The Worship Pastor. I asked him just questions about that vocation in general. We talked about some kind of uh, some other things, worship related, CCLI, which if you don't know what that is, you'll hear about that in the episode as well. Zach talks about that, songwriting, um, art in the church, all those types of things. It was wow. a great, great conversation. So I'm looking yeah. forward to this. Yeah, let's play it. Yeah, so you guys haven't heard it, so I hope you enjoy uh, my interview with Zach Hicks. All right, Shades Midweek, it's good to have you with us. I am here in the studio with a special guest, um, a friend of mine. We have not hung out a ton, uh, but we have many mutual acquaintances and friends, and um, we've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last few years, but I'm, I'm glad that we're actually getting to sit down and do this. I'm here uh, with a friend, a worship pastor uh, named Zach Hicks. So it's good to have you with us. Oh, nice. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look at this live studio audience. It's incredible. Right. You didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Huh? yeah. People also should know that you were my son's drum instructor. Yes. For yes. a solid year and a half. So thank you. Yes, for sure. Is he still playing drums? He's he's in percussion and band now. So okay. he's kind of transitioned to marching around and looking all stately and stuff like that. So not not playing the kit much as much as I'd like, but you know. When you're a rock star, you got to wait for that beast to emerge from within you. You can't yes. manufacture it. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> and for me, I wish that I had had that marching band background because yeah. I feel like that would have been really helpful. So I, yep. I do yep. think those things uh, help each other a lot. So, um, well, cool, man. Well, for those of you who are listening uh, that don't know who Zach is, uh, why why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and all that good stuff. Yeah, so I'm a, a worship leader and pastor, and I've been serving local churches for nearly 20 years. Uh, I grew up in Hawaii, and then went to college and studied music in Los Angeles, met my wife there, and we both moved near where she grew up in Denver, lived there for about 10 years, uh, and that's where I, we both studied at Denver Seminary. She got her degree in counseling. I got my degree, uh, Master of Divinity, 
for pastor stuff. And uh, we thought we were going to live there forever. And then God uprooted us and moved us to the foreign country of South Florida. And uh, it was a missionary call. Like, you can't believe it just was so different than anything either of us had ever known. Spent three years there before, through a series of connections of the church I was serving down there. And uh, the cathedral, cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham ended up here. And I served Advent for five years until just recently. Um, and man, it's been a wild ride. So here I am. A lot of my background has been in, in this kind of sense of like being called to be a pastor, being called to be a worship leader, and wrestling through actually what it means for the two of those things to merge together into one vocation. And that's been a lot of the reason I wrote the book I did, and it's been a lot of the reason that my life has taken the path it has thus far. So um, that's it in a nutshell, and that's the kind of stuff I I love to think about, gospel-centered worship, um, the pastoral dimensions of worship leading, and I kind of dabble in thinking about theology and dabble in making recordings and writing songs, and I love how those things actually intersect, and that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. I've got four kids. They're all uh, almost teenagers now, 16, 14, 12, and 11, three boys and a girl, so now my life's taken up by taxiing them around and attending all their events, whether athletic or dance or whatever, so. Right, yeah, yeah you're a busy man for sure. Yeah. What was the transition like? I mean, you are from the West Coast, essentially. I mean, spent a lot of time out there. What was the transition like from that to the South? Culture well, shock, is very man. different, too. Oh, totally. Culture shock. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a Westerner by disposition, so I'm just a casual person by nature, I think. I dress casually. I relate casually. My sort of life and work, it's not very formal. I like informality, and it's just sort of the person I am. And so coming to the South where, uh, especially in the church I was serving, there's just a lot of formality to it. And uh, even the culture here, you know, um, funny enough, one of the things that I observed that is a similarity amidst the huge differences between a place like Hawaii and the South is that in Hawaii is heavily influenced by Asian culture. Mm. And there's a strong honor shame dynamic there. And I find the same thing true here. Like I've never seen in California or in Denver or in South Florida, but the way people behave and relate um, largely centers around whether we're getting honor or getting shame, especially if you, you know, are native here and have grown up in a family from the South and, you know, Birmingham's a small town. Uh, You can kind of know everybody else's business in a way, or at least the, the areas of Birmingham that I was in, um, in a way was a very small world and the honor shame dynamic was alive and well. And I was like, man, of all the things that feel foreign about the South, that is a, a strangely, uh, familiar dynamic to me is, um, is this whole business of honor and shame. Yeah. Yeah, Birmingham is weird in that it's like a big little city. Yeah. In that everybody, de- like, it's weird. You go out to eat or something, and it's almost like you expect to just run into somebody totally. that you know. It's, it's very bizarre. Totally. It just happened to me. I ran into some yeah. folks from the church, you know, out to lunch just before yeah. I got here. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the book that you wrote. The book is called uh, The Worship Pastor, A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teams. Uh, when did the book come out? It came out in 2016, so 2016. It's, it's coming up on uh, being five years old. Okay, yes, and uh, I told you earlier, um, Jonathan and Brad and I, we have weekly worship planning meetings 
we actually went through this entire book together uh, two years ago. It was super helpful uh, for me and for us as a team, um, really just to be able to look at, okay, what are some things that uh, that maybe are affirming what we're doing, that we're maybe doing right, and then what are some weaknesses or some blind spots kind of within the ministry that we could work on better, and, and really just helping me help to form the position that I took uh, in 2019 as the worship pastor here, um, what, what led you to write this book? You know, what led me to do it was that was so that God would create scenarios in churches where what you did happen. Yeah. Um, at least one of the reasons was so that worship leaders and pastors and congregations, frankly, would get together and talk about the, a, a pastoral understanding of worship, that worship is not just a context where we feel things and kind of have a, a good devotional experience with God, but it's actually a place of formation and discipleship. And if if I am formed as a disciple in the act of worship on a regular basis and through the habits that it trains in me, that puts my worship leader on the hook and puts my pastors on the hook to think pastorally about how they plan worship and lead worship. Um, and that's kind of one angle. Really, the reason it came about was sort of my own vocational angst. My testimony is... is being a kid who always grew up in the church, really God grabbed a hold of me from an early age. And from a fairly young time, I really felt called into pastoral ministry. And as I took that path, um, for some reason, as God cultivated musical gifts, I always ended up being a worship leader in local churches and in my mind, not a pastor. And I started wrestling with God over that. I started fighting and uh, shaking my fist at God about like, when are you going to actually make me a pastor? When am I going to fulfill this calling on my life? And over the series of, of a few years, through conversations with other worship leaders that I know and trust, through stuff I was reading that was kind of blowing my mind about what worship is, there was a revelation that God more or less just kind of hit me over the head with, especially as I was journeying in relationship with the brothers and sisters I was serving in my local church. And that that revelation was, what you're doing is pastoral ministry. What you're doing is discipling people. You're shaping their prayer life. You're uh, helping them follow and know and love God deeply. And you're presenting, uh, you're creating context where the Word of God is unleashed to do work in their lives. All that's pastoral work. You're providing pastoral care. All these things started clicking. Uh, and so I started keeping tabs on it just for my own personal notes um, started getting calls from other pastors who are like, hey, uh, we've heard about the kinds of things you do in your local church, and we're looking to find worship leaders like you. Where do we find them? And I said, I don't quite know. <laughs> you know, it's a slow process to train them because I'm still learning myself, but I'll send you my notes. Sure. And so I would send them this notes, and then one pastor got back to me and said, hey, do you ever think about the fact that what, you're, what you've written here is not only helpful to me for our job description, but it's also looks like a book outline. Yeah. And I said, no, I'd never thought about that. And then, yeah, God just greased all the skids and then uh, ended up being able to to publish a book about it. And man, it's, it's, it's done what I prayed it would do, which is get into local churches and kind of overhaul the way worship leaders thought about themselves. Yeah. Overhauled the way pastors viewed their worship leaders and worked together. And in some sometimes it's even overhaul the congregation's understanding of who that dude or dudette is up there, you know, holding a guitar or playing piano or standing in front leading the singing and that kind of thing. And um, 
that's been such a joy because that's where I think that the payout has been is is how it's upended and transformed a local church's worshiping life and discipleship. Yeah, 100%. You know, you said something really good there, too, about there is like this misunderstanding uh, I think that comes in general when you're just when you're just a musician, right? Yeah. So if you're just a musician, there's sort of this social it, it's this breakdown of like, so what is it that you really do? Like, mm-hmm. what does your nine to five look like? I don't quite That's understand right. it. So then you put on top of that, like, well, then you're uh, a, a pastor, you're in ministry, you are the uh, whatever music director or the worship leader or the worship pastor, different titles. Um, so I always feel like for me personally, you know, I tell people I'm a worship pastor at a local church and mm-hmm. people just don't know <laughs> what I do or yes. what that is. They, I kind of think it, it, it sort of begins and ends with what they see up front on yeah, stage. That's right. Um, and so I feel like this book with all the descriptors, all these chapters, I mean, first of all, I think the book is, uh, it's really dense. It has like, a, it's packed full of information in a good way. Um, there's a lot to chew on. I'd, I'd actually personally like to read it again. But I, like I said earlier, I think it's helpful in sort of forming this whole picture uh, beyond just, hey, I just pick uh, you know the top CCLI songs every mm-hmm. week, and that's just kind of what I do. And then I make sure that uh, the band sounds really good, and we have we're practiced and we sound great. You know, it's actually so much more than that. So much broader. Yeah. And I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted it to be kind of like a manual for worship leaders, but we're creative people by nature and uh, we kind of need a vision for it rather than just kind of a how to, there's lots of how to's out there for worship leaders. They tend to be more practical, like how to run Ableton or, you know, how to, how to set up a sound system and make your tech and lights run and stuff like that. But I was looking for something that would kind of stoke the fires of the imagination so that it would be a really positive outlook. So, I mean, the book's outlined with a lot of creative metaphors that get teased out in each chapter. Each chapter, you know, focuses on a particular metaphor, whether uh, that's a worship pastor as mortician yeah. or a worship pastor as theological dietitian or disciple maker or prayer leader or emotional shepherd or liturgical architect, tour guide, curator, all these kinds of things. Yes. And I, I, that was purposeful because we're creatives by nature. Even pastors are, you know, even pastors who don't aren't musicians are still artists in the sense of their their form, their art is oration. Their yeah, art is yes. is preaching and teaching a lot of times, and that's an art form. And so we needed imaginative ways to rethink and expand our minds about our job descriptions. Okay, so I do have a question. This is uh, has to do with your background, but there's I think we could maybe talk about some portions of the book as well. But uh, you do describe yourself uh, having a background as a default uh, charismatic. Those yeah. that's the words that you use. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. Um, I I come from a charismatic background mm-hmm. as well. Um, uh, the first church that I was at, the first uh, sixteen years of my life that I grew up in very Pentecostal Mm -hmm. charismatic tradition. Um, and then went on to maybe more of like a more standard, like non-denominational church. Um, from there, uh, could you just talk a little bit about your charismatic upbringing? I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, I didn't grow up necessarily in a charismatic church. I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church in Hawaii and it's, it's funny 
um, you know, Southern Baptists have a way of being able to import the South <laughs> wherever they are. Right. And sometimes I like to joke to Southerners that I'm actually from the southernmost state in the Union. I'm from Hawaii. So I, <laughs> I out-South you, man. Right. Um, but uh, nevertheless, you know, the baseline takeaway or all my charismatic friends or even just growing up around my charismatic brothers and sisters, one of the things that always encouraged me and that I took to the bank in whatever worship situation I was in. Um, it should be on the sleeve for everybody, but is on the sleeve more for charismatics is when I come to a worship service, the principal reason I come and what I can expect to find is an encounter, a mm-hmm. radical encounter with the presence and power of God. Um, and I think all traditions in various ways believe that, but it's the charismatics who own it. Mm. Um, and that vision for worship as an encounter with God gripped me at an early age and really has never left me. Yeah. Uh, even even as I've you know studied the Bible and developed theological frameworks around this stuff, uh, the fact that when I come, I'm coming and God's going to show up and speak to me and do things to me by the power of his word and his Holy Spirit... I don't think, you know, that you transcend that fundamental reality. Um, And in a way, the times that I felt most dry in my faith and in my worship life as it regards, uh, you know, corporate worship with people, it's been when I've lost that. So I've always found that to be something fundamental. And in that way, I am a default charismatic. I may not have grown up in traditions where you got tongues and backflips sure, and like, sure. you know, yeah. uh, awesome physical expressions <laughs> and manifestations of God's power, you right, know, right. Uh, but the idea that worship is whole bodied and that that whole bodied reaction to and response to the power and presence of, of God, particularly in and through his Holy Spirit, um, I don't, that's never going to leave me. So that's, that's what I mean when I say I'm kind of like a fundamental charismatic sure, sure. in that nature. Uh in this chapter here, this is the corporate mystic chapter. You talk about three different voices. Yeah. You talk about the Pentecostal charismatic voice, uh, the reformational voice, and the sacramental voice. And um, I think I, if I remember correctly, kind of what you're getting at is, uh, you know, uh, some uh, traditions, some churches may embrace one of those three. Yes. Um, and kind of, or lean heavily on one of those three and sort yeah. of neglect the other ones. Right. And the, a really nice picture would be for those things to come together. Oh, right? totally. Yeah. And so I know you probably don't know too much about shades Valley, but it's interesting. This, there's some culture that was kind of laid here before I got here. Shades is a 30 year old church. Um, so when I got here, uh, a lot of the discussion was around what we call the four streams, mm-hmm. which is a uh, charismatic, evangelical, liturgical, and orthodox. Mm. And so we try to, uh, form our Sunday morning services to try and embody all four of those streams. Cool. So we have spirit led worship, but we also have, we read a confession and assurance every week together. Mm. Uh, we mm. take communion Every week together, there's a, a high emphasis on the preached word. Yeah. Um, so we try and, and arts as well. We embrace the arts here. Um, do you do you see this type of thing a lot in churches? Have have there been churches that you've been a part of where where those things have all been embodied together? Yeah, you know, a part of the reason I identify it in its in the way I do is because I don't see it a lot. It seems yeah. like in church history we have a hard time holding them together and one starts to take a real strong emphasis. And if I put it in that charismatic language I was using before, 
Uh, you know, it's either that the pinnacle of a worship service is the sermon, because that's where I really encounter God's power and presence. Or, you know, the char- charismatic voice being like, man, I really encounter God when we're singing together and when the fire falls uh, in those really special moments of song and, you know, sacramental traditions, which kind of conflate, um, you know, the Eastern, like you talk about your four streams sure. in a way those 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 two streams are, are brought together. But right, right. Um, the sacramental voice will emphasize that, you know, Holy Communion and coming to the table is the pinnacle of the experience of the presence of God. And you don't, you don't find that those traditions often give credence to what the other is saying about how they encounter the presence of God. And yet when I open my Bible um, and I start to write, try to listen honestly about a kind of thick, robust theology of worship, it's all there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, yes, I in every church I've served, in a way, I've identified, hey, what's our strength and what's our liability? Where where are we strong? Where where do we tend to avoid or not think about the fact that this is a real place of encounter with God? And and that's been a part of my project. But, you know, uh, I have seen some churches that do it well. And it's largely because I think finally the walls are breaking down between contemporary worship, quote unquote, yeah. always having to be a non-sacramental or always about the musical experience to the right. neglect of, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper, or maybe even to the neglect of of strong biblical gospel-centered, spirit-filled preaching. Uh, and those walls are, break, are breaking down such that it doesn't feel forced anymore to think about uh, liturgy entering into a contemporary worship environment. And with liturgy comes some of those uh, historic liturgical practices that are insanely biblical, like, <laughs> you know, like communion, mm-hmm. like uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper with God's people, and like uh, experiencing the prophecy that comes through the preaching of the Word. And so I'm watching those walls break down. And, and it seems like those walls are breaking down fastest in um, kind of charismatic and contemporary churches because they aren't m- marred and bogged down by, they're flexible. You know, they, they just are inherently flexible because they're, you know, charismatics are good about always saying, I'm always listening. Right. And sometimes you end up listening to really good theology and realizing, man, I need to, this needs to fill out our service. Whereas, you know, people in traditions like mine, Anglican and Presbyterian, tend to be a little bit more snobby about, you know, I don't want to feel too much this stuff because feeling leads to <laughs> dancing and dancing leads to sin and dancing is sin, you know, like whatever. <laughs> right. You know, right. we've got our, our own problems um, and we, we need those. But I, I do find, you know, it's in a lot of those spaces where uh, people have really encountered God through singing where they're most open and going like, how can I increase the the places where, where we encounter. And it's like worship doesn't suffer by adding those things. It actually only increases in its value and nothing gets taken away. Okay. So this is kind of a broad question. Um, with kind of technology, um, everything is moving at such a fast pace. Uh, we see this in our society and our culture all the time. Things, uh, with church, I would even say, uh, during this time of COVID and the pandemic, things are changing rapidly. Yeah, uh, churches are having to adapt. There is uh, now, you know, like we, for example, we went from never live streaming to having to figure out how to live stream right. our services. Right. This was just something that we had to do due to the nature of the circumstances of COVID, the pandemic. 
So there are things that are changing. What what do you see as some of the challenges moving forward for uh, worship pastors, people that, that take on this vocation? Yeah, you know, I think one of the challenges, one of the central challenges is to be thinking pastorally and analytically about the technologies that we're, um, that we're employing and that we're bringing in. Every generation of the church, there's, there's no way around technology. I think, you know, when we say technology, we tend to mean electronic gadgets and gizmos right. and stuff. But technology is anything, you know, that's a, an artifact of culture that assists in mediation of communication or something else, you know? So technology is something that humans have developed. So like a book is a technology, um, you know, stained glass in a way is an artistic technology and um, architecture is full of technological insights and innovation. So every generation has had to grapple with technology for the church. The unique position we have now is you're right. Things change so fast and the only constant now is change. The rate of change is increasing exponentially such Mm -hmm. that you know, people our age and younger are just used to the fact that uh, I, I'm always learning and picking up new things. It's a part of my existence that I can expect a new OS is going to appear on my iPhone, and I'm going to have to negotiate how to reuse my messages a little bit and what new emojis pop up and all. Mm-hmm. So we're used to that uh, constant barrage of new things. The challenge will be is to always ask the important question of, as we employ new technologies, what cultural idols are we dragging in alongside? What do we need to evaluate? Because in any technology, there are possibilities and liabilities with those. And I, you know, people from our, our traditions, our Protestant traditions, tend to only think about the possibilities and don't recognize the liabilities because we're sort of bent on this vision of, hey, win the loss at any cost. So I'll employ whatever technology helps me best communicate without thinking about the fact, say, like, let's use the example of live streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, how does live streaming affect one sense of how our faith is by nature incarnational or, or referencing the incarnation of Jesus, that Jesus is not only a divine spirit, but he's also uh, flesh and blood. And what is that? What's the implication for gathered Christian worship and our bodies and our bodies being perceptible to each other physically, not just virtually, Mm -hmm. not just over a screen. What do we lose when we, um, when we're sitting in our living room in a disembodied, disconnected state from other brothers and sisters, as it relates to the incarnation and, you know, what kind of idols of passivity, you know, if we're looking at worship on a screen, just like we look at any other screen, we're all, we're going to be people who tend to be more passive. We don't think of screen as something we participate with or in. We watch it. It entertains us. And so when we look at a worship service, we're going to slip into those default modes of passivity and entertainment. I mean, proof's in the pudding. Mm-hmm. When I'm at home live streaming a service, I tend to not as easily sing with uh, yeah. you know the people. I tend to not feel the need to participate. I'm totally cool getting up in the middle and going to the bathroom. I can control this. I can pause it, you know, for goodness sake. I control God's, you know, messaging and timing coming to me. If I want to go get a drink, I can. It's, and you lose the perspective that, hey, this worship service is, is God's presence working and speaking to me. I have no control over it. God's sovereign. You know, so you start to, you can think about all the implications. And for every technology, there are blessings and liabilities. And when we don't think through the liabilities and think pastorally about how this is going to shape our people, there are things downstream from that that we end up having to undo, you know, uh, just like as we're coming out of this pandemic, we're seeing kind of a lot of, 
oh, people are reticent to come yeah. back to worship. And it's not just about, I'm scared of getting the virus. It's like, mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I was doing just fine in my living room. And all of a sudden, it's like the slow slide toward a kind of spiritual atrophy can occur when you're not engaging in those practices that shape you. Okay, so you're talking about shaping. This is great. So uh, I know we talk. you talk about this in the book, about how worship pastors are, uh, let's see, which one? Maybe maybe it's under theological dietitians. Can't remember if that's if that's the chapter, but uh, regardless, um, the songs that that worship pastors choose mm. on a Sunday morning, this is very important, and I feel like this is a big uh, discussion that's happening. Uh, it's probably been happening for quite a long time. Uh, I kind of want to bring that in, maybe discuss that a little bit. Maybe discuss um, CCLI yeah. a little bit as yeah. well. Could you maybe briefly explain what CCLI is to anyone that's listening that doesn't know what that is? Yeah, so that's insider speak for worship leaders, but CCLI right. is, is kind of like the billboard charts of worship songs. Mm -hmm. CCLI stands for Christian Copyright Licensing International, and it was developed in the, I think, in the 80s. Um, as a means for songwriters who write worship songs that get used in local churches to be able to have those churches report their usage of those songs so that those songwriters can receive royalties, which as a songwriter and as someone who gets part of my income from that, yes and amen and, mm -hmm. and hooray, that's been a way that the church has uh, blessed me and um, you know helped me continue in my vocation. And CCLI is kind of like, in addition to that billboard chart, they're, they're a, a money machine, you know? So there's all kinds of complicated economic right. power struggle factors there and things that probably need to be repented of. Um, but when we're talking about song selection, what that means is that um, oftentimes Christian radio, Christian churches, we knowingly or unknowingly take our cues from those charts. Whatever's popular, which is often dictated or at least reported a little bit later on CCLI, we kind of go to as, okay, that song works, I'll do that. And there's a liability in just doing what's most popular all the time. Um, and I, I do think that that's kind of another arena where we can think pastorally about this stuff. Sure. And uh, one of the things I like to joke about is that God actually has a CCLI top 150 chart. It's called the Psalms. <laughs> um, and maybe... If we actually did some side-by-side -side compare, take the top 150 CCLI songs, take the top 150 God CCLI songs, the Psalms, and do some comparison. I actually challenge um, churches and worship teams to take a retreat, take their top 30 worship songs sure. um, that they've done in the past three years, which basically amounts to, if we're thinking like a theological dietitian, it amounts to like the baseline diet of their congregations, sung life and prayer life corporately mm -hmm. for the last few years and then you know analyze those for their theological concepts for the ways that they talk about God and humanity and kind of put all those topics on a board and then everybody also brings to the retreat maybe five psalms that they've worked on that they've done that same analysis to and they throw those things on the board and then they look where are where's the overlap okay we're doing okay here where are the things that we're missing oh we don't have any songs about confession or mm. lamentation or man we really don't address enemies or spiritual anxiety mm. or or literal anxiety you know physical anxiety we don't address these things and they're all over the psalms but they're not here 
maybe CCLI isn't the total answer. Maybe we need other songs. And, you know, if we're jumping ahead, that's kind of where it's great for local worship leaders to to be songwriters. Not everybody has to, but oftentimes that's precisely where God can call a local church to birth their own prayers to God and for local worship leaders and teams to write things that can fill those gaps. Okay, so let's hold on to that thought because <laughs> uh, I, I like where we're going. There was one thing that I had prepped here. So check this out. This this goes along exactly with what you were saying. Um, are you on Twitter at all? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. It's gotten obnoxious, it, and so yes. I tend to jump on no notifications, <laughs> but like once every two months. It can be dangerous. So anyways, I was on Twitter, and uh, there is uh, – this Old Testament lecturer that I randomly found. Someone must have retweeted him or something. I, I don't know much about him. His name is Michael J. Rhodes. Okay. Um, he's an Old Testament lecturer at Cary Baptist College. Once again, don't know too much about him, but apparently he's working on a... Uh, he's researching for a book that he's writing for InterVarsity Press. Uh, the book is about discipleship oriented towards justice in scripture. Mm. Mm. Okay, but he but he but he had this Twitter thread that I thought was interesting and I just want to hit up a couple of these things. And this is in regards to CCLI. Uh, he says uh, just worked through the CCLI's 25 most popular worship songs after spending months studying the Psalms. And here's mm. what stands out. Yeah. Uh, justice is mentioned only one time in one song of the 25 <laughs> yeah. top songs. Uh, he says, uh, Mishpat, I don't know if I'm saying that right, yeah, so yeah, yeah. alone shows up 65 times in 33 different psalms. Mishpat's the Hebrew word for justice, yeah. Okay, so number two, the poor are completely absent in the top 25. Yeah. Uh, by contrast, the Psalter uses varied language to describe the poor on nearly every page. Um, three, the widow, refugee, oppressed, are completely absent from the top 25. Um, the orphan gets two mentions one occurrence of which appears to refer to a spiritual orphan. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, enemies are the third most common character in the Psalms. They <laughs> rarely show up in the top 25. Yeah. Uh, when they do, they appear to be enemies only in a spiritual sense. Yeah. Uh, five, maybe most devastatingly in the top 25, not a single question is ever posed to God. The huh. top 25 Never yeah. asks God anything. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. um, let's see. What does he go on to say? This Rhodes guy can prepare to be really unpopular well, after yes. publishing this book. You're exactly. <laughs> uh, so many of these top 25 are written by a handful of organizations, Bethel Hill Song Elevation Worship. That's right. Um, he says, let me be clear. I love many of these songs. I sing them regularly. Uh, but the church has put the production of what we sing into the hands of professionals, and if those professionals, Bethel Hillsong, Elevation, etc., keep writing songs that just edit out enormous portions of the biblical language of worship, churches will have to fire them and find other resources, or our worshiping lives will be impoverished. Uh, worship that doesn't sing like Scripture sings is devastating. We fail to interact with God the way He demands we interact with Him. Uh, because singing has a unique power to affects uh, to affect hearts and minds, we cut ourselves yeah. off from one avenue of transforming power in our discipleship. Um, and I think, but I think that that everything that he's talking about does kind of lead us to okay. So if this is kind of what we have, we have <laughs> these songs, uh, the top twenty five, top one hundred songs, and kind of the most popular. Um, in order to address these gaps. 
um, what what do we do? And I think kind of what you were talking about. I mean, I think yeah. writing writing is important, and maybe finding other resources that are not as popular, using those on Sunday mornings. But That's anyways. right. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, aside from merely identifying what are the gaps, how do we how do we tap into resources that are there? And I'll say that is one of the grand gifts of technology in the last fifteen years is that recording and disseminating one's one's music and one's ideas has never got never been more democratized right you know uh and we recognize this as worship leaders if anything we're kind of a bit overwhelmed by all the things that we could possibly choose from especially if we're like on worship leader forums on facebook or some other discussion group and people are always offering their kind of local music or resources um and i found nowadays uh, if i need to find something on a specific topic that it's it's those forums where I can often find the best shot at getting close to those resources, those bootlegged things or those things that are kind of local but not popular. Um, and often, like, I, I'm part of a Facebook group called Liturgy Fellowship, and I'm always amazed cool. when I, I... I mean, it'll be like, hey, give me a song on uh, that, that connects to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And within half a day, I've got <laughs> usually over 40 substantive comments and links and things like that. Wow. Uh, and, and so what, what I'm finding technologically is that these smaller communities of worship leaders are becoming like curatorial resources yes. for the um, you know, overwhelming and, and way too large um, resource community that is the internet. Um, because the reality is nowadays there really is the ability to find a song on just about anything. Yeah. Um, and to be able to tap into other folks who kind of think like you and who maybe have thought your thought a little bit ahead of you. Maybe they meditate on the Psalms like, man, we got this gap here. Maybe we need to sing about enemies. And they amassed right. their list. And so they just copy and paste that right onto the comment. And um, you find you find that uh, that's how I kind of skin that cat. Nowadays, um, when I'm trying to find something on a topic I feel like is neglected, is aside from maybe feeling the urge and the call from the Spirit to write it, sure. is to is to actually tap into the communities where the Spirit has already moved, and I might just have not paid attention or known. Like half the time, they recommend stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I listened to that album, and I didn't even notice. But that's because I'm trying to listen to so much stuff, and it just flies right by me. Yeah, that was, man, that's great. That's great to know. That's a great resource. That was sort of, when I encountered that thread on Twitter and was reading all, all of that, my response was um, to it, I, I feel like there are resources that address these yeah. gaps and issues, but I think what it's coming down to is really just, um, and it's it's, once again, it's not to knock on um, kind of larger churches or, or yeah. anything like that. It's it's not to knock on those, and I'm sure that there are some that are maybe addressing these things better than others, but it is the reason that these songs are the most popular is because this is what a majority of churches are playing. So yes. there is like a choice. Yes. There is a choice that's being made, whether deliberate or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the resources are there for the taking and the finding. Mm -hmm. But if you're not really interested in discovering those things, then... Yeah, yeah. and it's kind of, uh, you know, it's self-perpetuating because it is, you know, to talk about industrial complexes, you know, the, yeah. the worship industry is an industry. It's a money-making right. machine. It's an economic machine. 
And, uh, you know, even as we do have the volition and the will and the ability to choose whether or not we're going to do those songs, once, once they are popular, it's, they're exponentially more in our face. Uh, you know, once they get on the CCLI charts, they, they find their ways to us uh, much more quickly and much more uh, diversely, very quickly, and so, and that's part of the way that industrial complex works is that it's it's got the machinery to get those popular things back to you, and so mm-hmm. it becomes a self perpetuating thing that you do have to, if you're wanting to be intentional about this stuff, work to um, to sideline or at least to counter and say that's not going to be the only voice I hear, despite the fact that it's everywhere. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, have you ever heard Aaron Keyes like talk about some of this stuff before? No, but it wouldn't surprise me that he's brilliant yeah. on it because he's an awesome dude and thinks really deeply about discipleship and worship right. and has written some great songs over the yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I've heard him talk about like just kind of the idea of there are only a certain amount of songwriters that are on the CCLI yeah. top one hundred. Yeah. You know, there's just uh, like pretty much every song is has a hand. You know, there's like one of eighteen people. They're yeah. usually there in yeah. one song or another, like they're always showing up. So it is pretty interesting that so many top songs are in the hands of so few people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just interesting to think about. Yeah, and I mean, so I a lot of my sort of academic work is in the field of liturgy. I've done a lot of investigation of historic liturgies and old prayer books and stuff like that. So I've studied Cranmer. I've studied the Book of Common Prayer. Mm. And in a way, our songwriters nowadays are doing what Cranmer and the other liturgists were doing. They're writing prayers for the people of God. Uh, And so it's big stuff that we're doing. And and just as I studied those other liturgists who were taking their liturgies seriously... um, and, you know, even Cranmer wasn't alone. He was writing with a bunch of other songwriters, if you want to put it that way, in the sense of he wasn't just innovating and writing his own stuff. He was pulling from other liturgies and stitching things together. But it was always, for him, it was always serious business. It was always tethered to fidelity to the Word of God and um, discipling people. And uh, I wonder whether we have a grave enough sense of what we're doing when we're writing songs, because nowadays, especially in song-heavy churches, where the a, a large chunk of your worship service isn't going to be like a, a prayer book liturgy, but it's going to be song. That means that those songs are on the hook for the same things that the liturgy has been on the hook for, for years, giving us the word and preaching the gospel to us and uh, catechizing and teaching us in the faith and the training us in righteousness, all those sorts of things. And I don't know that when we sit down as a worship leader, write a song, we're feeling all the feels, whether we're thinking about it from that perspective of like, gosh, I'm, I'm writing liturgies from, from my church and other churches. And, you know, when you think of 18 people doing that for a vast majority of maybe North American, um, North American, evangelical, white, whatever churches Mm -hmm. you want to describe them as, that's some serious business right yeah. there. And we could take a cue by studying the songwriters, quote unquote, of old, the people who wrote liturgies and thought theologically about those things. How can local churches better support artists and songwriters within their communities? Oh, I love that question. So it's the hardest thing. I mean, um, certainly it involves, I'll just be this blunt and specific, financial resources, right? Mm. 
But whatever, it, I've always encountered this when I've been uh, trying to, say, write songs and come up with a recording that our local church did. You kind of have to face your budget committee. <laughs> you have to face your executive pastor or, or lay person who's in charge of your church's budget. And usually those types of people, and I love those types of people, uh, you know, they, they're attracted to that kind of work for a specific reason. They've got a certain type of gift. But oftentimes um, to that kind of person... Art looks very wasteful, and it looks like bad stewardship. And so I, there's always a bit of apology I need to make or defense I need to make to those folks, not in a defensive way, but in a kind of offensive way of, um, of saying, here is the reason biblically and the reason theologically and pastorally why churches making artifacts and art uh, is a valuable enterprise. Um, and so I talk about the artistic nature of the temple. I talk about the way art always pervades uh, the scriptures and God's people in worship. And um, whether Israel was wandering in poverty in the desert, they still were to create uh, a beautiful tabernacle with gold and stuff in it. You know, <laughs> they were still to create some form of music. Yeah. You know, um, and and you know the whole idea of extravagance you know our artists like to and i think this is a good one to point to is is jesus honoring the woman with the alabaster jar that broke a huge expensive uh vial of perfume over his feet and jesus rightly understood hey she's she's showing love to me and and preparing me for my death by just wasting this beauty beautiful sweet smelling stuff on me uh, there is a sense in which art's wasteful. You know, whenever you're writing a song, there's going to be scraps on the floor that you don't use, you know. Um, and so being able to help people who give money, whether that's just the church at large or the finance people in particular, to understand that art's part of uh, hu human flourishing in general and the church's role in particular uh, is vital, and it's, it's central and essential, you know, to the church's existence. And if churches weren't doing this, what would we have to sing? What would the church be, be able to... I mean, art's indispensable to our, our one of the most fundamental realities of our existence, which is gathered corporate worship. So, yeah, I'd really encourage people to think through those dynamics um, of Scripture for the way that we think about supporting art-making in a local church, as big and small as that scope may be. Uh, you've put out some records yourself. You want to talk yeah. a little bit about those or maybe one in particular? Yeah. Um, I, several LPs, EPs over the years. I was on for a long time and still kind of am a hymns and liturgy kick and kind of writing songs related to setting old hymns to new music. This most recent album, though, was a bit of a different quest. Um, it's called Hunger, Thirst, and Altar Fire. It's put out by Advent Birmingham. Hmm. And actually, this this one did have to do with perceived gaps in songwriting. And those perceived gaps were songs of confession and lamentation, but of a modern hue. And what I mean by that is um, there's a lot of good songs now about confessing our sin and guilt to God. But I don't hear a lot of psalm songs talking like the Psalms when they say, I'm anxious. I'm hungry and I need you. Not, not I'm hungry in like a triumphalistic way, like, look at me, I'm so hungry for God and hungering for righteousness, but like, no, 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 I'm depressed, I'm starving, and I feel like you're absent, God. And I, we were coming up with like modern worship songs that would offer ways that a modern person would say those kinds of things. So like a, 
A big psalm that kept on resonating and reverberating through several of the tracks was Psalm 42. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul thirsts for God uh, as, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, why are you so down? Why are you so depressed, my soul? Put your hope in God. And I was thinking through all the young people that I regularly minister to and talk to, and the prevailing, um, just so common now to be to be filled with anxiety, mm. to wrestle with anxiety and depression. Mm. And I'm like, where is the opportunity to pray that to God in a confessional manner and to lament that state to the Lord? And I was like, I don't find a lot of songs that get there, at least to the way that I'd want to I'd do it. So we started, we started writing some songs about that. There's a couple songs that uh, At the Place of Need is one of them. And... Um, you know, and the whole the whole album ended up being around those themes of deficit, hungering, and thirsting, and um, even the confession song "Take My Heart with Altar Fire" was in a way saying like, "I'm kind of at the end of myself, and if if I'm gonna find anything, it's got to be all you." You know, that sort of desperation, and we wanted a whole album to be modern worship songs with that kind of vibe to it. Beautiful. I will make sure to put all of that information, the album, and a link in the show notes uh, so that people can find that. Um, you also have a website, ZachHicks.com. Yeah, it's been neglected, but I keep <laughs> it up because uh, the blog posts over the years have gotten a fair amount of traffic and cross-pollination from other people and been of use, and so... You know, you can Google a worship topic and it ends up being there because I guess I was sure. one of the early worship bloggers in 2009, there for goodness you go. sake, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so um, it's it, they, there's a lot of resources on there for for worship reflection on random stuff. Are you planning on writing another book or any, anything like that in the works? Heck yeah. Um, I've got one book in the pipeline, super nerdy. It's not going to get a good following. It's my doctoral dissertation tra- oh, wow. translated into a book. Okay. It's analysis of Thomas Cranmer's work on the Book of Common Prayer with a particular view of like, how did he think about gospel-centered worship? And it's pretty technical. Okay. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend that unless you want to really nerd it up about historical theology and then applying it to gospel-centered worship. But um, on the total other end of the spectrum, for about 10 years, uh, as I've been leading worship in local churches, I've been instituting or fortifying this practice of pre-service prayer with like worship volunteers and with musicians. And uh, what I would do is I'd lead a devotional, some sort of thing from scripture that that was pretty specific devotional. It was a devotional about like, how do we think about what, what's about to happen, this worship service, and how do we arm ourselves to pray uh, for certain things that will take place among our people with regards to this worship service. So they were like worship service focused devotionals that I led our volunteers and musicians through. And what I found upon doing that was that it really had a spillover effect in the way that those worship services happened. You could kind of sense um, God just doing things in fresh ways as a result of our prayers. And maybe it's simply that our eyes were more open to it because we prayed for it. So with about 10 years of doing this, I kind of kept a catalog of some of the best ones the devotions, and that, I think that's that's what I'm currently going to be pitching to publishers is a is a devotional that worship leaders can lead their teams through before services, 
and then a twin book that's a resource for worshipers. So like a congregant that may not be at that pre-service devotional, but may want to kind of be praying along the same lines and thinking along the same thoughts about that. So yeah, that's, that's the quest. I think that's going to happen in the next year or two. It's exciting. Awesome. Um, Man, I could continue to pick your brain about a number of topics, but I want to respect your time. I do have one quick question. Uh, I follow you on Instagram, and I've seen you post recently about a record that, for me, uh, has just been, it's been a game changer for me this year. And I think you know what I'm talking about. It's Andy Squire's record, uh, Poet Priest. Man, these songs have uh, been hitting me in a certain way. We've talked about it actually on this podcast before. I, I've ta- I talk about it a lot with my friends and yeah. fellow musicians. Yeah. Man, what a gem! And just uh, he's very inspiring. Just being a musician, just to hear yeah. lyrically and yeah. Well, shout out to our mutual friend Jeremy Moore. He's the guy who told yeah. me about it. And it's funny he told me about it in the context of talking about the very things that Squires addresses on his album. Yeah, you know the things that kind of mark. Uh, existence of millennials and younger, which is mm. this kind of really wrestling through our faith being deconstructed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what it means to wrestle through a, a God who hides and who doesn't have easy answers to the real complex questions when it feels like against what we always sing in charismatic churches, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Right. And, you know, Squires comes in with a, he a line. Yeah. He says, sometimes a weapon will prosper, you know? Right. And it, it just hits you in the gut because you're like, you know, he's in a way it's a contradiction of the word of God, but in another right. way, it that's precisely what my existence feels like. Yeah. And so he's naming something that I think we're scared to name, which is sometimes it feels as a Christian as though God isn't real. Yeah. And that's scary. And what Squires is saying, I think Squires is giving validity to the fact that that in an ironic way is a very faithful thing for a Christian to say is simply to go, God, are you real? Mm-hmm. And then once you open yourself to being able to ask those kinds of questions to God, and then you read the Psalms, for instance, you find that language all over the place. Right. And then we're back to our CCLI conversation about, like, <laughs> why does nobody give me a song to sing like this? Exactly. You know? uh, how helpful would this language be in the dark night of the soul? So, yeah, if you're in that place of the dark night, or if you've gone through it and are looking for someone to help you maybe process that biographical journey, um, I think Squares' album is great, and uh, it allows a Christian to be a real Christian, not a fake one. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I find a lot to mine in what he's written there. Are there any other books or music that you've uh, been consuming lately that you would recommend for any reason whatsoever? Ooh, this is, yeah, totally. Uh, Yeah, you know, um, this is funny, it's total end of the spectrum, but... Uh, the old Victorian author George Eliot. She, uh, you know, George, that was her pen name because it was better to be a, a man writing books right. than a woman writing books. She, I think, in my opinion, was like the most brilliant author of her time. And she has a little gem of a short a story. It's like 100 pages or so called Janet's Repentance. And I've been rethinking about that recently as a result of reading some, I don't know why I got on this kick, but I was starting, I, I heard a podcast on it, so I'm reading a Anne Bronte novel called The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Okay. But it reminded me of Janet's Repentance. Janet's Repentance is part of a collection of three stories uh, in George Eliot's book called The Scenes of Clerical Life. But just go to Janet's Repentance and read that and watch the interaction of the minister with uh, this really broken woman and the way the story unfolds and the way he proclaims the gospel to her. And honestly, 
it's like a novel version of Squire's album. Wow. Uh, so I'd, I'd recommend it. And I mean, Elliot's, the way Elliot talks about the inner sanctum of the heart and the way the heart really thinks and feels about stuff is pretty remarkable. And even though she ended up being an atheist, I find her insights extremely Christian <laughs> mm. in the sense of like, you know, anytime you're dissecting the truth of the human soul, you're really opening up God's truth. And yeah. she, whether she knew it or not, was just opening up the deep places of the human heart. And I find, yeah, I've got, I've got room to hear that again and again. Yeah. Some of my, I feel like some of my favorite artists do that. Yep. Some of my yep. favorite songwriters that, yeah. you know, whether it's Springsteen or Bob Dylan or, or, totally. uh, you know, Brandon Flowers, like the most recent Killers record, you know, they do that. Um, they, they, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, probably not intentionally, but it's still God is finding a way. Yeah. Know? Well, anytime you got some, an artist, and the artists do this best, honestly, an artist is simply asking deep questions from and of the soul. Yeah. You're dabbling in biblical territory always. Yeah. You always are. And there's always something worth listening to, whether it's a, a film that asks those questions or an artist that asks those questions or a painter or a poet or a novelist. Um, all those things, man. Um, you're not far from the Lord when you're being honest about the human condition. Zach, uh, before we go, how can we be praying for you? Just oh, thank you. Yeah, how can we be praying for oh, you? Oh, thank you, Shades. Uh, pray, <laughs> pray for me about um, discernment, about what the Lord would have for me in this. I, there's a new chapter turning over for me of ministry, and God has graciously said, I'm going to hit the brakes, and you're going to wait on me for a little bit. So I've been praying lots of psalms. Mm. Uh, and in the midst of that, though, I feel God's starting to ramp up toward uh, some kind of call. So if you all would graciously pray that God would speak to me and move me and move around the people to, to solidify that and that I would have the courage to say yes to whatever that is, it's where I'm at right now. Beautiful. Thank you for the honesty. Thank you for your insight, uh, your wisdom. Just thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to be here with me today. Um, Everyone, check out The Worship Pastor, especially if you're a pastor, if you're in ministry. Check out that book. Check out Zach's music as well. Um, I'll link all that in the show notes. This has been another episode of Shades Midweek. Thanks so much. Thanks.